Brushwith is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including literature, music and of course art itself, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Alison Katz, an artist who probes the complexities of painting, drawing on diverse imagery, a range of painterly techniques and distinctive forms of display to create environments that are by turns delightful and perplexing, but always enthralling. Alison was born in Montreal in Canada in 1980. She studied at Concordia University in Montreal and then at Columbia University in New York, where the influential painters Charlene von Heil, Amy Silman and Jutta Kurta were among her tutors. For around a decade, Alison's lived in London. Her paintings are hugely varied in style and imagery, but the longer you spend in the company of Alison's work, the more the associations, the playful connections and the fundamental rigour of her thinking emerge. Certain images reoccur, cabbages accompanied by a shadowy profile of a male face, monkeys and cocks or roosters, the interior of a mouth that frames a variety of images. But the context shifts between the paintings so that each one is entirely distinctive. Take a few examples of the cock motif. In one, the cockfather, the bird is in fact a ceramic egg holder and the cock turns its head to look at three eggs that it carries on its back. In Cocteau, a rooster, realised in a style evoking historic farm yard illustration appears ready to peck the ground while its tail feathers follow the line of a self-portrait by Jean Cocteau, the French artist, poet and filmmaker from a mural in London. In the other side, a more cartoonish animal appears five times, growing from faint to vivid across the canvas, as if rushing across the painting. Perversely, perhaps, I couldn't help but think about this as a witty reference to Duchamp's new descending a staircase. The title, The Other Side, is, of course, a reference to the classic joke, Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road?, and is perhaps the most literal manifestation of humour in Alison's work, an element that's both welcoming and disarming, almost conversational. But even this most basic of jokes has an underbelly. There are undertones, as Alison points out, of a death drive, of the unknown, even of restlessness. Also, why did the chicken cross the road is in fact an anti-joke. It has no punchline, it's deflating. So her title becomes more philosophical as you dwell on the painting, an attempt to explore the other side of what's seen or understood. Playfulness and punning in words and image are a productive scene throughout Alison's oeuvre, and they often appear in reference to her name. Her initials AK become AKA, for instance. One painting of a curiously digital-looking feline is called Alley Cat, one of Alison's nicknames. In another, she breaks up her first name to create the phrase, All is on. In another, she describes a face using the letters M, A, S and K, forming the word mask, but the letters also stand for Ms. Alison Sarah Katz, her full name. The purpose of these references to names is to question the role of the artist's identity in making the work. What does it mean to have a signature? Can painting ever escape its subjectivity, however inventive and various an artist's style? But Alison's probing of selfhood never appears archly self-conscious. I found that it lures me even deeper into the questions she's asking of her medium. And there are always other trails of thought that follow. All is on suggests illumination and activation. The notion of masks conjures ideas of exposure and veiling. 
And she asks questions too in her approach to the stuff of paint. She can use it diaphanously, bluntly or coarsely. Her colour can be faithful to the objects she describes or extravagantly imaginative. And then she uses formal devices that break up the painting surfaces and reinforce their physicality, mixing paint with sand and perhaps most uniquely using rice embedded in the surface. Among the most distinctive ways in which she examines paintings, forms and context is through innovative display mechanisms, creating total environments for her work. It even extends beyond the gallery. She designs posters for each show using a dizzying array of fonts, sometimes of her own design. This unorthodoxy of presentation makes a profound impact. In her exhibition at London's Camden Art Centre, she showed several of her mouth paintings on freestanding walls, exactly the width of the paintings, and structured in a V-shape so that we saw them together in a dynamic arrangement, a chorus of mouths. And on the opposite side of each wall, there was a niche with a cabbage painting in each one. Again, there was a humour here, with the mouths on one side eating the cabbages on the other, but it also created a unique form of correspondence between her bodies of work, one which pulls us in as viewers and keeps us guessing. And it's this aspect with which I began our conversation. Why does Alison place such importance on these often complex installations of her works? I've always thought painting is quite site-specific. It's not generally thought of that way because it is a discrete object, and that's also part of my attraction to it. But in creating an exhibition, you're creating almost a performance. It just has a different kind of duration. It lasts a bit longer, but it's finite. It's a collection. And it seems to me that uh, a way to kind of see painting again is to start encountering it in perhaps unexpected ways. And weirdly, I conceive of a lot of the paintings with their walls so it's not like I paint them first and then I think about how I'll hang them I mean there's various streams always coexisting but when I know I have an invitation I like to work backwards go to the space see what is there what's already been done in that space for example I always love looking through the archives of exhibitions and since 2015 I've been working with my cousin Caitlin Tobias who is an architect so I draw out these various ideas, and then she really helps to visualize them through a kind of architecture program, and, and I make models and stuff like that. But I think there's something integral about thinking about the wall, because fresco is one thing where they're never to be parted. But other than that, you know, the wall is contingent. It's kind of also like loosens my relationship to painting, which can get kind of heavy or you know, there's a lot of history to it. So one way of thinking about it for me was to sort of also think about the wall or the the constraint of how it's viewed. And of course, one of the ways that you do that is by hanging the pictures at different heights. Sometimes, for instance, in the Camden Art Centre show, the cabbage paintings were sort of tucked into the back of the walls, which were Mm -hmm. supporting the mouth painting. So, So you play on the combinations between the works within those installations too, don't you? Yeah, and on almost like the encounter and the surprise or the reveal. I think that in a way that helps almost prime the viewer to imagine there are reveals in the image itself as well. So, you know, you're not just kind of going up to a wall, looking at a work and then turning away. There is some sort of choreography. There's some sort of presence or awareness of your own body and things like reveal and conceal I think they happen 
inside the image. So if I can sort of mirror them or rhyme them with the actual walls or the installation, I feel that there's just like a kind of added energy to perception. One of the things that you do in the work is is repeat forms, repeat images. For instance, there are cockerels, there are monkeys, and there are mouths. Why do you return to those images? Well, it's interesting that you say repeat, because previously, in another life, uh, people used to say that every solo show I make looks like a group show. And especially in grad school, I remember there was a lot of conversation about um, being too disparate. And I don't know if that was an unconscious response, but it was a way to sort of harness the breadth that I wanted out of painting and also this instinctual feeling, almost like a repetition compulsion, that I wasn't finished and that at the same time you can't put every painting in the one you're working on. So it was almost uh, a proposition or like a question to myself, how can I keep answering this? But I don't see them as repetitions, right? I see them as a kind of self-organizing, ongoing inquiry. And I don't even like the word series because it it seems so deliberate when actually they're very open-ended and fluid. And, you know, what's essential, let's say, about the Cockrell paintings is that each one is different. So they may be united linguistically, but they're not united visually. And I was kind of calling upon language to do the work of cohesiveness so that I didn't have to consolidate image-wise. And, you know, something like a cabbage is different each one so in effect you are starting again and with attention paid on something there's really no similarities you know there's superficial similarities or something but that's the kind of uh, psychedelic thing about looking for a long time and even looking again at the same thing on a different day I would argue it isn't the same thing so I mean actually when I was much younger like maybe I don't know 20 I made hundreds of portraits of a Corot painting, uh, very small, kind of almost miniature, um, a couple of inches. And each one is really different, but it's looking at the same portrait. And I was kind of obsessed with this idea of having a portrait sit for a portrait. And, and almost to test out this thing, it was very you know juvenile in a way because I, I didn't really have any discourse around what I was doing. I just wanted to keep painting this thing and was almost annoyed that I couldn't paint it in the same way and then turned that so-called problem into a solution, which is looking is the act of refreshment. You know, that looking in itself cannot be contained or repeated and to kind of find a way to almost challenge that. That sort of language that you're talking, Mm. the language of forms, is so interesting. I noted that you talked about using forms almost like quotations, like literary quotations. Mm. Can you say something more about that? Yeah, I think that painting is a conversation. So you sort of ask a question via a probable title or a brush mark, a gesture, a color, and then you get an answer. And then you have to ask another question. And it kind of, the process to me isn't so physical sometimes it's more cerebral and I've always found that strange thing that painting can absorb so many different kinds of process like it really sometimes is very physical and exhausting and other times it's it's just kind of maddeningly mental and it's all in your mind you know you haven't even painted anything and yet you're already bored of it so I was also very reluctant to be process-based I don't love getting lost in paint (laughs) I'm not someone who, you know, um, 
just wants to paint all the time. I really want to limit in some ways because it's so all-consuming. And so I find the intensity of it has to be measured. And oftentimes I can't control that because there are time constraints. But I think that's also how painting engages with time. And, you know, there's a sort of chronos-kairos dichotomy that always happens with painting where you have the chronology and you're going along and then you have this kind of opportune moment of action that totally stretches out the previous timeline. And I guess that's the zone or, you know, however this kind of thing is described, but it really seems to challenge conventional notions of time and what can be accomplished in them. And I think process fits into that kind of inexplicable descriptive act. You know, like I could never really describe my process, for example. I actually never really inquired about artists' process so much as writers' process. For some reason, I thought that would be more helpful. Um, So I remember there was like a moment when I was so obsessed with how writers write, you know, what time do they get up in the morning, how many pages a day, and what they're drinking, you know, all those kinds of questions for no real apparent end, just that I thought, well, I want to kind of know how someone else does it in a different form. Talking about that kind of the process, though, um, the presence of non-paint in your painting, so sand, for instance, and particularly rice is something that I'm really intrigued by because in the painting, which is called The Other Side, which is this repeated image of a cock, and it, it sort of gets more and more insistent. But on the other hand, also, there's this presence of rice there, and it's all at one end, very, very thickly contained and painted black but then as it spreads across the surface you've got these minutely painted in bright color bits of rice which must have been very processual and 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 time consuming so tell me about that well it's also not that time consuming to paint rice despite the way it looks it 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 seems so much uh, more you know kind of crazy than it is but it's just like a little dab but I think with the rice for example I think it can signify many orders, you know, it can like the pecking order or grain consumption cycles of feeding. But then it can also, in that painting in particular, it becomes the cosmos, you know, you've got this expanse of a void, and then the rice starts to act like constellations or stars or points in a universe. So I'm amazed at how that material can also shift in, in, in a single painting in that case. But the rice and the cock paintings are a kind of rule I made for myself, an arbitrary rule that occurred with the first cock painting in 2011. And I think sometimes arbitrary rules in painting are very productive because they produce constraint. And the rice, like the sand, are disruptors to oil paint's slickness and its illusionism. And I'm so impressed with the way that the rice or the sand produces the realism like the texture of life is indelible and indivisible. And that is what will always kind of puncture the image. So as much as even I want to get lost in the illusionism or the window that painting can produce, I also don't think that's where its energy lies. Not for me anyway. So this kind of competition, you know, this irritant to what you might want or desire versus where other information resides to me seems very productive in the act of looking. And it may, again, not be what someone wants or is expecting, but it, for me it's very generative in how an image kind of lives as an experience and in the mind. There is another disruptor of illusionism, the sense of selfhood in the work. So the forms of signature, the forms of representation of yourself through 
written words and also your mm-hmm. own image is the way that you present yourself in these very myriad forms a way of stopping that kind of painting as a window into something yeah yeah I mean I think one of paintings qualities and it's really enduring qualities is the feeling of intimacy and proximity with the maker through something very mediated and also that time never seems to play a real part in the act of looking. You know, you can look at something made hundreds, thousands of years ago, and you feel presence. And I mean, one of the pleasures of looking is also identifying the maker, you know, feeling like you know who made that painting. And I myself, I'm totally guilty of this, and <laughs> almost like a, con- a, a private connoisseurship, like, oh, I know that's a so-and-so. And especially as a younger um, person who was obsessed with going to museums, like, I mean, the way people would go shopping, you know, I would go and do a museum for a whole day, like from opening to closing. I don't have that obsessive drive anymore, but I did. So I consumed so many paintings for so many years and felt very uh, attached to knowing who made what and when, like all these kind of biographical details. But personally, when it comes to making, I feel that painting is more interesting when it's sort of deferred in terms of identity or signature. This idea of the artist's touch can actually be broken down and spread out, so to say, like can be maybe a little harder to encounter. I don't know if it was something about also rethinking the way art history is given to us. There's obviously been so many changes even since I've been to university or took, you know, my first theory classes. So I guess when I kind of started reading actually like a lot of French feminist theory, I realized that maybe subjectivity is not to be unified. It's not to be consolidated. And there's more freedom in a way of self-shattering and kind of extending or challenging questions of identity. And certainly with, you know, a more linear view of art history that you are sort of heading towards some apex of style or achievement or a masterpiece and that that's not the point of style And that's also never actually how it's been for artists, that periods do not beget necessarily better periods. You know, they're just different. And it's so much more horizontal. So I think that when it came to sort of understanding what is a suitable subject, it seemed to me impossible to not be interested in my own touch and my own bias, my own taste, really, my own taste, which seems to be the core of the drive. And so to question that, felt like, okay, that is kind of underlying everything that I'm interested in. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I'm not really sure that I can access that person who first looked at things. I have a more episodic view than a narrative view of the self. So it's hard for me to kind of refer back to things that were formative because I think it's more experiential than individual moments. When I was 18, I met an amazing artist named Susanna Phillips who lived in Montreal where I'm from, but she was originally from London. And I ended up modeling for her for eight years. My figure was very abstracted. 
So it was a, a fascinating experience of being looked at, but of not being represented directly. And I'm sure you can probably trace from there a lot of ideas about <laughs> um, subjectivity and uh, observation and the model and also the female gaze, which was so interesting to be in that dynamic with someone. And she really taught me so much about looking. So I came to, for example, Koro through her. And it's also something I think that's really crucial to all these questions you asked that I'm, I don't know if it gets discussed as much, but I always think that the experience of who showed you something is kind of more important than the thing itself. Learning about art, especially, it kind of always comes through bodies. So it's the, the proximity or the memory or the context in which you first kind of encountered something. So I don't think I ever came to anything myself. You know, I have memories of objects that my mother collected, and I feel like those were very formative. Even if I didn't understand them, because they were my mother's, they had a very special charge. Versus if I had seen that same object in someone else's house or in a museum. So I really feel the, that any relationship to object has a context. I know things speak to you, of course. But yeah, I think it, it kind of goes beyond maybe like, I liked this or something. Absolutely. So it's in a way, these encounters curate your experience of art and, and your journey through art, right? So it, it, I'm, I'm exactly the same. Of course, my art teacher at school who loved Matisse helped inform my love of Matisse. And there's, mm. there's no question of that. Yeah. You know, I remember reading something that Clemente said about Boetti saying that, you know, when they were in Naples in the 70s, I guess, everything he learned came through Boetti. And that that's when he realized that art is, in his mind, the last oral tradition in the West, of course, where it's someone has to tell you something and explain something to you. That really struck me as a way that, let's say, a kind of feeling for art is transmitted. And it's through one's peers or one's mentors or family. All those things to me feel really crucial in the appreciation of it, more so than, let's say, a kind of canon uh, so which historical artist do you turn to the most today? That's nice to say today because it, it changes. <laughs> well, currently there is, of course, Derain and this mouth motif that is a woodcut from 1943 that he made to illustrate Pantagruel by Rabelais. And it's a book, you know, it's a small book page size print. And when I wanted to quote that, you know, quote this mouth quoting, uh, the world seen through the gut or from the perspective of language, uh, voice, you know, non-eyes, I decided to enlarge it to my height because that was sort of my way of being maybe more aggressive about using it. So that would be one. And I'm currently looking at a lot of images of Nebuchadnezzar, the biblical king who uh, was forced to crawl on his hands and knees for seven years. Um, Blake did a version of it. And there is also a Degas painting in the National Gallery that I'm particularly interested in now of the Spartans. Yes. And there's one teenage boy who is in the same position. He's on his hands and knees. And he sort of has some similar features to me. So he's like my avatar. Uh, and I've been painting him. How interesting. Because it's an unusual picture because there are certain associations we have with Dugas' work. And even if it's the most obvious ones like the ballet dancers or whatever, but but the Spartans is a really unique work in terms of, certainly in terms of the National Gallery's collection. It's a really odd painting. It's right? very odd. And he seems totally unsure of what he was doing. It's painted over many times and it's 
it's really, I think, a very androgynous picture, too, despite it being separated into two camps because they don't seem particularly masculine or feminine, which I think is amazing. It, to me, it's a very hormonal painting. Mm. Teenagers wrestling is amazing, and I feel, like, very attached to hormonal pictures. So to me, to me it's the perfect painting, really, of Dega. It's the one Dega I would want. Ah. Uh-huh. So... Um, let's go back to Durand. Yeah. It's, it's such an extraordinary image. I, I, I wasn't aware of this image until mm. I'd seen your paintings based yeah. on it. Rather wonderfully, Brian Dillon in, in the art newspaper review of your show at Camden calls it an epiglottal perspective. So it's, it's, it's literally in the mouth looking mm. out to the world. Mm. So it frames, and you've used it as a framing device. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it also has this amazing kind of flowing shape like curtains. You know, it's really staging bias or perspective or a drive you know, for hunger, anger, uh, speaking, communication, devouring, consumption, all these things. And it's also very playful. You know, it's kind of wild. And it also seems so obvious. As soon as you see it, I, I almost feel like, oh, I've always seen that, but I had never seen it. And I actually really love Darren for his inconsistencies and his ways of really radically changing his style I mean for lack of better word because I don't even like the word style I think it's so limiting I think it's his interest it's always the same handwriting it's always his hand it's just what is he trying to get to and he seems very unattached to the previous successes of you know this early fauve work or the stuff that you kind of if you see Darren in a book it tends to be if you had to pick one picture for him it would be not a late work for example, right. you know, and I just think they're so wooden and strange and problematic in the, in a very productive way of looking at them. I want to ask you also about Verrocchio. And mm-hmm. there's yeah. this, it, well, is it a Verrocchio? Is it workshop of Verrocchio? But it's very interesting. It's, it's, to, it's this image of Tobias and the Angel, yeah. which you've used. Yeah. In, it's in, in several works, but there's one particular work where you include the writing, the mask writing, mm-hmm. which alludes to Ms. Allison, Sarah Katz, your name. Yeah. Um, and behind it, it's almost like you have entered into the space of Verrocchio's picture and turned it around so that you yourself are in it. What, what made you do that? It's such an intriguing way of referring to mm. an existing work. Yeah, well, that painting is incredible. It's also in the National Gallery, which I think is extremely helpful, especially since pandemic, maybe, that when I want to really engage with a work of art from the past, I want to go and see it. You know, And so it's not an accident that these works are in the National Gallery. It just doesn't cut it anymore to look at things on the screen or to save up a trip and then look at it later. You know, when you're in the throes of working, it it has to be better access. So, you know, to be very honest, I was drawn to that painting because of the name Tobias, which is my mother's maiden name. And that's right, because we heard about your cousin. Exactly. Caitlin Tobias. Yeah, Yeah. that's my uncle's daughter. And um, (laughs) it's a tenuous thread, but it also connects a lineage, a kind of imagined sense of family, and also participation in some of these narratives, which, you know, this is an Old Testament story. And I also do feel like I'm in a bit of a biblical moment. I mean, I think this is the apocalyptic sense around us all. With climate change, for some reason, I just feel that there's a a sense of old stories coming back and realizing they contain everything. And they're also very divisive in the ways that they've been taken up but in their kind of core, they connect to even older stories. So this kind of continuity that can happen and then painting being totally ineffectual at being able to show a narrative because you always have to pick one point in it. 
And so the use of symbols, you know, like in that painting, you have the little dog and the fish, which are in every depiction of this Tobias and the Angel story. So I guess it's a way to make sure everyone knows what the story is. And in the National Gallery case, that's painted by Leonardo da Vinci, right? That's the first evidence of his hand, the teenager painting the little dog and the fish, which I also love because it's like he was really given the task. But Tobias and the Angel... Yeah, I guess what fascinated me was they're on their way to cure the blindness of Tobias's father. And I thought, let's say they cured it, so they'll be on their way back. So I want to see them from the back. And I was also thinking about the frontal, the kind of constant frontalness of painting. And that's maybe something that, you know, working with walls all the time and going behind the wall, there was this desire to go behind the painting, or to just see it from a different perspective, and that sort of frustration realizing I'm not going to unless I do it myself. And there's something very beautiful in that painting's composition where Tobias, who's not an angel, is given cloth that's kind of shaped like a wing. So you almost have this way of talking about divinity or attributes and visual rhymes, which feel really potent, a way to talk about perhaps how desires can be manifest in form. And then to put my name in a face over it is a way to say, you know, I wasn't given that name. I can't continue that particular lineage, but I have another one and they are all layered and together in some way. And it's also a kind of masking to push something back is to also acknowledge that you can't really access it. And you achieve that through that sort of muted colouring of the Verrocchio reference beneath the... the Yeah, a kind of fog. And, you know, I had tried originally to paint that without the fog or the mask and the failure to be able to really engage in this moment with that era of painting directly is, I knew it would happen, but I didn't know how to resolve that. I still wanted to try. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 60 cultural institutions through a single download, ranging from the Guggenheim Museum and the Neuer Gallery in New York to the Courtauld and the Wallace Collection in London. Alison Katz has shown at several of the contemporary art galleries in London with guides on Bloomberg Connects, including Camden Arts Centre, the Hayward Gallery and the Institute of Contemporary Arts. If you download the app, the guide to the ICA reflects the famously multidisciplinary nature of the Institute. You can see videos of talks, find out about the latest exhibitions and some historic shows and explore the film programme with links to watch the ICA's online programme Cinema 3. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. The app is available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? I admire so many that maybe rather than making a list and just naming, I would talk about two in particular, both of whom I feel really lucky and grateful for their friendship and so it feels like the influence is more direct again and that would be Mark Camille Scheimowitz whose work I knew about before I moved here and our studios happen to be next door to each other and what I have always deeply admired in his work is the time scale and the feeling of a kind of Gestam Kunstwerk you know this kind of attending to all the elements and the way that decoration is not decorative 
before you move on to your yeah. next, I yeah, have yeah, to yeah. establish a link between an artist I know. Mark Camille is, is so interested in, and that's Jean Cocteau. And you've made a painting called Cocteau, which is based on these murals that are in London and hidden away, really. Yes, exactly. They are in Leicester Square, the, the least likely place for a Cocteau mural in the French church. And I don't even know how I first heard about that. It may have been with my friend Camilla Wills, and we went there to do some research. And what was so interesting about that, you know, really researching that phenomenon of Cocteau in that moment, you know, he painted and there was such a crowd that came to watch him paint that he put up a a screen and he would speak to the paintings this is the story. I mean, it's very performative, but it makes a lot of sense. He would speak to the painting and he felt that, you know, fresco or painting on plaster was a way to have a conversation because the plaster was like an ear and it absorbed what he was saying. So he would tell the characters why he was painting them, what their part in the narrative or in the pictorial composition was. And and people wanted to hear that, but he didn't want to be seen. And I also think that's a really special part of you know an energetic process that translates when you look at it even if you didn't know that it's so charged and different to everything else in the church that's so fascinating and of course there's a cock in the painting cocktail yeah because that's the required wordplay that (laughs) at the same time is very easy to pick out and you mentioned another artist another contemporary artist you admire which is charlene von heil i studied under her at columbia in new york They sort of had this mentor program, so there was a group of us, and we visited with her twice a year only for two years. But it was so incredibly influencing in how I looked at image process, the experience of a painting, and also was very important for the way that I think about images and representation to actually learn from those who painted in a, you know, abstract manner, you could say. I mean... Most of my professors have been abstract painters. And I think that that is how I came to understand that I also see all images as abstract. That despite painting one thing, you're really trying to access the unseen. So the image is always going to be an index or a kind of reference to that which you cannot paint. In the context of Charlene von Hull, you wrote an essay on her work Mm -hmm. and you wrote about something which seems to me is absolutely central to what you do too, which is this idea of negative capability Mm. and the idea that somehow to be an artist who is able to not be fearful of uncertainties and mysteries and overly seek out facts and and reason Mm. is somehow a kind of privileged position to be, to embrace that. Mm. Yeah, and I think that It's also what we want out of artwork. I mean, that's what I want out of it. So I assume, and and obviously I'm my first viewer, but despite thinking I don't want it, you know, I mean, intentions and desires are very strange motivators. So there's also this part where the painting itself directs you on what needs to happen. And, you know, it's also a lot about getting out of your own way. But ambiguity is something that is also constructed, You know, you don't just go into it being like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, You have to figure out ways to construct I don't know to make it interesting rather than just kind of confusing or debilitating. So it's, it's a discipline to have that faith in your doubt. You said earlier on that in terms of referencing other paintings now, you you need to be in front of them. But do you have things pinned to the studio wall around you? Yeah, I should say I don't always need to be in front of them. Maybe (laughs) it's just um, it reminded me that living in London is 
a resource in itself and that I should sort of make better use of it because when I first moved here I was all over this place like a rash you know and then (laughs) and then life takes over and then you could be anywhere and then I think there was this kind of reminder like no the city itself needs to be used as research again because it's not linear you know you don't always know what you want you have to make that time to just wander and get curious again about what's already here I like to pin nothing on my studio wall except things directly related to what I'm working on, which is also very few. It's a little bit like I have almost nothing on the walls in my apartment. I haven't quite figured out how to tune out stuff when I'm working, and I'm turns out I'm working all the time. So <laughs> I try to keep this almost uh, blank space when I can. But I used to pin loads of stuff to the wall, and then I found it was too... Referential, like it was again trying to consolidate identity or intention. And it seems to me anything I can do to remind myself that I don't need to consolidate is more generative. Uh, Which museum or gallery do you visit the most? Well, when I first moved here, I was at the V&A all the time. Uh, They have that National Art Library there. Mm. And I lied and said I was doing a PhD. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Sorry, I hope Tristram. Not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hope that no one will arrest me now. Um, yeah, they were very loose about the PhD description anyway. Um, but that was a way to be able to go in there and take out all these, well, have someone take out books for you, which was also quite novel. Mm. But the V&A for me was unbelievable in terms of its collection i mean it's problematic too of course you know like this very fact of collecting but what was really useful for me at the time was not being paint specific and it was seeing things like stained glass and fabric and patterns um furniture it was sort of the the full gamut of curiosity and form sculpture and even seeing the victorian attitude of display, which was something, you know, I did not encounter that. I'm not, I wasn't born here. So to sort of almost like steep oneself in the multiplicity of form, also the way they privilege things like posters and jewelry, you know, and ceramics, stuff that is very hierarchically lower than painting, which I myself have never really ascribed that hierarchy. So it felt good to go to a museum that also was thinking, no, this pinafore is as interesting as this portrait bust as this coin. So I would get a lot of ideas just through seeing the various ways in which people felt like obsessed to express. That's interesting. And of course, you've made ceramics yourself, Mm -hmm. your your plates, they sort of do form an important part of your exhibitions, don't they? What's your approach to to ceramics? Because they're pictorial in all sorts of Mm. ways, but also lovely surfaces, you know. Basically, so far, my experience with ceramics is painting plates using glaze. And I've made a few small nose-ass sculptures, but these kind of combined things. But um, essentially, glaze to me was an amazing alternative to paint because you put it on and it is different in color to how it will be once it's fired. So in terms of getting an element of surprise and chance in process not in um, image construction, which is a separate thing in my mind, but just from a purely process point of view, it was really volatile. And this idea that, you know, fire was completing your hand was really cool because I especially like to use these glazes that have little crystals in them, like a lot of mini explosions that, yeah, they, they kind of take over whatever line you had best planned for. I mean, it was really addictive for a while. and But I do it in bursts. I can't really... 
engage and I'm not technical and I don't want to be you know I I tried a few rounds of clay and I just thought you know once they tell you if you handle it wrong it's going to explode I was like okay forget it yeah <laughs> leave that to the professionals I don't like learning too much technique that's interesting I mean, there are people who see video art and say they could learn something if they talk to the editor of the x factor about how to edit a film and it's like the whole point of so much art is about taking oneself outside of technique and outside of supreme skill and entering into, as we were talking about before, kind of uncertain spaces, right? Mm, yeah, I mean, I have it with, for example, Photoshop, because I make all my posters in Photoshop. So that has been a learning process of how to use the program. But I also deliberately get help sometimes by a very brilliant assistant of mine who knows how to use these programs and knows how to use Illustrator and all these other ones because I don't think it would be productive for me to spend hours and hours figuring out a program. You know, the the best compliment I ever had on the posters came from a graphic designer and he said to me, you do everything wrong. <laughs> like every mistake that we learn in school, you do. Um, like all these things, the way you place the images, the, the alignments. And I thought, yeah, because... I don't know what I'm doing, but the poster for me is about the energy of that announcement. So I think that's why it's exciting for me to make them. I'll let other people judge if they enjoy looking at them, but not to be a dilettante either and not to demean technique or other people's forays into how things are made. I think painting, it's really a balance between actually knowing how to use the paint, which you just naturally over years get better at, versus trying to undo habits. Because habit can get into your mind, you know. And so I really try and have very little habits. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? When I was 15, I went with my school, a very small all-girls school. Just my class, actually. We went to Italy. And it was my first time. And what struck me most of all was that the place looked like the paintings, and previously, I had thought the paintings were pure imagination. So to go somewhere and see that actually, oh, wait a minute, you know, they're just painting what's around them. Like this, this kind of level of beauty or this landscape is real. It really blew my mind. I can't even imagine that I hadn't thought that it would be that way. I thought everything was purely invented. And again, you know, I, was, I, I grew up in Canada, and not to knock its form of natural beauty, but it's not, it's not luscious in that same way. And there was a kind of like total aesthetic of the place that I thought, oh, the paintings reflect their environment. And if you want to change your painting, you might have to change your place. You know, that was sort of the bigger takeaway over time, was that the imagination is, of course, very fertile, but it's also reflective. Let's talk about literature. Which mm -hmm. writers or poets do you return to the most? So I also thought a lot about this question, and rather than kind of make a huge list, I thought it would be more meaningful to talk about those who have helped me read poetry and who kind of helped me see it differently. And when I was at Columbia, I audited the classes of Richard Howard, who I'm not sure if he's that well-known here. He was, well, he's actually still alive. He's 92. When I sat in on those classes. He was 80. And he's a poet, a translator. He was the 
editor of the Paris Review for many years. And he taught classes that were so specific about ways of reading. And for example, one of the classes that made the biggest impression on me, it was called Over the Top. And it was looking at literature that was dealing with frivolity. Actually, you know, this is what I wrote down. Hold on, because the list is really good. (laughs) The class was called Over the Top, a look at literature animated by the energies of frivolity, the eccentric, the virtuosic, the giddy, the silly, inversions, paradox, nonsense, parody, and camp. And the way that he gave space for the margins or things that were not, let's say, considered subjects of literature or reading literature in this different way was so life-changing for me. It really was. It was also such a pleasure to audit a class where everyone else in the class was sort of sweating because they were writers. And then, you know, I was coming from the visual art department. So to just be amongst people who weren't doing what I was doing. So I knew that I could take it in in this really ambient way. And yeah, especially that stuff about nonsense, inversions, it really allowed me to be brave about what I wanted to paint because I was finding these analogies in literature. That's so interesting because you've also quoted that Virginia Woolf quote about poetry being a voice answering a Mm -hmm, voice mm -hmm. and, and about how you, in a way, wanted to aspire to that condition in your painting. Yeah, yeah. And actually... I read Orlando with Richard Howard. That was one of the books on that, that kind of idea of switching voices and bodies and time periods, that kind of flowing through without, you know, limits or or borders. Yeah, I think it's also a way to think about style, you know, rather than thinking this is how I paint. it's, It's almost like this is a voice I'm going to try and inhabit with all the things that it connotes in terms of mimicry, imitation, projection, all these things, you know, for me was somehow, he gave me permission to think about the silly or something like that as being very serious. And of course, we know, like through psychoanalysis, things like that, that jokes and wordplay are very formative to the mind. But there was something about really giving time to reading through it, and having both the pleasure and the analysis that felt really radical. The other one that happened since the pandemic And it's Ariana Raines, the poet who started a kind of Zoom reading group. It's now become something called Invisible College. But she was reading Rilke and Sumerian mythology. And um, she did something called Saturday Morning Demonology. But her way of reading has been a huge inspiration, a huge source of, of energy, like a source, really, for when things were tricky and the way that she managed to convey her interests and her electricity through the medium of Zoom was, I mean, really magical, really magical. Um, And that got me through the whole pandemic. That's wonderful. Yeah. Which music or other audio do you listen to as you work? I have been finding music very distracting lately, which is (laughs) tragic, (laughs) It's not always possible for me to work to music because I get swept away too easily. And sometimes I need this kind of neutral mood. So I really like voices. Also not neutral at all. But when I do need to listen to something, sometimes I really like listening to conversations. And when I first got here, I was obsessed with Desert Island Discs. I had never heard anything like it with Kirsty Young as the host. No other host does it for me. Um, (laughs) 
And I was amazed that people would even attempt to encapsulate their life through song and through these kinds of sound bites. I mean, it was terrifying to me as much <laughs> as I would consume it rapidly. But the tradition of radio, the, the amount of radio in this country is unbelievable. I mean, no offense to the CBC in Canada, but it doesn't, it doesn't hold a candle to the depth and the, the extent of which radio is a form here. The other thing I love listening to is sports, tennis in particular, and football, you know, listen to it, not watch. I only will watch like the final matches or the very important matches. But there's something about listening to commentators describe movement and get so excited and then come down and have this downtime. This Wimbledon chat, for example, is amazing. And I don't know, it's something that's really... (laughs) Very obsessed with that. I can appreciate that because, uh, you know, trying to struggle to just ask a question on here, the idea of describing events on a tennis court. As, uh, as it's happening. And, yeah. and no faltering, just that at that speed. It's, it's, it's so amazing. It's almost like it's performance and the simultaneity of trying to say like what the ball's doing, what the player's doing, you know, setting the scene. And also the stakes are very high in tennis the way that the game can you're you know you're a match point and then it takes another two hours this kind of intensity takes the pressure off painting because you think (laughs) but but there are certain types of painting that you can't do when you're listening to that kind of oh yeah yeah for sure for sure but luckily you know the big opens are there a few months in between so I gear myself up for that but but yeah sometimes it's impossible to listen to anything other times, you know, I'll, I'll try and start an audiobook or something. And then I just think, ugh, no, like, so it's really, really unpredictable. And that's why I kind of start each day, like, can I listen to music today? Can I listen to a podcast? Ugh, no. Which other media influence your work? Well, I guess we did kind of talk about it with the excursions through the V&A, but graphics, posters, and fonts. I don't know if that's a media, but fonts, I really love. I think people who love fonts would describe them as a media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, um, sometimes I make, not my own whole font, but, you know, maybe it's a sort of like form of graffiti or, you know, what, what we used to do in the margins of the notebooks is sort of these big bubble letters. And yeah, I think it's graphics. It's got to do something most generatively with the way things are written. With the Camden Art Centre show, for instance, I saw your poster before I saw the show. So mm-hmm. like, and it was designed by you. Mm-hmm. And like, what do you hope that they'll achieve in that kind of outdoor setting? Because they, they obviously do set the tone for the mm, show, yeah. but you're not going to do that in the same way that a graphic designer that's going to do the, the standard branded Camden Art Centre. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is something I, I really picked up uh, when I studied in New York, but that, that painting um, is more than just the painting, right? It's the title, it's the text, it's the poster, it's, it's so many other forms. And the idea that you would give that over to an agency or to a corporate entity, even the institution itself, just seems like you're, one is missing a chance both to interrogate those conventions and also to set the stage. I mean, the other thing about posters that I love, I loved band posters or, you know, music posters and performances. And I think painting is a performance. The act of seeing an exhibition is, is a performance. It's just on a different, more protracted time frame. But giving it posters almost made it 
a bigger event than it is. You know, it kind of like adds to the mythology of the experience of seeing something. And I was very influenced by Kippenberger's posters and that practice of kind of making a poster for everything because you are taking over that voice that announces. And it's it's fun. You know, it also kind of just creates energy around anticipation. And I think anticipation, desire, deflation, those are real acts of seeing and they should be incorporated somehow. That's why I would also never make one poster, but five, because then I was against this idea that you have to encapsulate or make an icon out of this really maybe unruly thing. So if you make five posters, no one can accuse you of, you know, simplifying anything. And then that was also a warning to the viewer (laughs) that there's no way to reduce this. I don't want to reduce this to an image. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? No two days are the same. That's partly my, you know, insistence on not having habits. But the one guardrail I have is weekly, and that's psychoanalysis twice a week. And I feel like that is the only ritual I need in the sense that I stick with that. And then I let kind of the pattern of the day evolve because I would like to have rituals but not habits and then it can be confusing you know but that that kind of sense of inquiry that I do in psychoanalysis creates enough structure are you interested in the phenomenon of psychoanalysis in the same way that say the surrealists or like I saw Louise Bourgeois show this week with you know Louise Bourgeois was for instance does it inform the work in that say as an entity you know I think so because it's a form of inquiry and it's also kind of staying in check with the mind which is the kind of as much as the heart it's the organ that is making seeing thinking and you know I've been in and out of psychoanalysis since I'm 18 which I guess it's a material you know I was very struck by the fact that theorists when I was younger and I began reading theory that they were doing psychoanalysis it felt like of course if you're going to inquire you have to be the subject of inquiry as well and I've come to see that a lot of what the analyst does is listen you know not so much analyze but listen I think that reflects even how I might look at my own work. I might just listen differently to what I'm doing or trying to do. And it can be very challenging. It can be pleasurable too. But it's, I guess, this thing of trying not to be afraid of the mind. I love this uh, samurai statement that said, I will make my mind my friend. And, you know, that's a kind of warrior attitude. Like that would be the best case warrior attitude. Um, But this idea that, you know, why be in conflict perhaps with this thing that is already conflicted? I think it's part of the work of painting. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Yeah, this question. (laughs) You know why I feel untrained to answer this question is because I don't really currently live with art. And it's something that I imagine I will do in the future because I have some incredible works of friends and, and I have even bought things. Maybe it's because I rent my apartment. I don't really feel like I can really put anything on the wall. I'm not sure. This has always happened. I've rented my whole life, if obviously. If you could rent <laughs> one work of art, what would it be? <laughs> and then I was trying to trick you by saying the work I'm going to want is the whole Basilica of, of St. Francis in Assisi because there's so many things, all those giottos and there's a chimabui and like, you know, maybe I just want a total, I want an architecture. Maybe I want something where it's not a single painting, but a, a total experience. And lastly, what is art for? That's a nice question because it's pretty open. I would answer today, I would say inquiry and a kind of 
to get close to desire, to sort of start to inquire about drives and this inner life that at the same time is a complete construction of outer life. So something about thinning the veil. Alison, thank you so much. Thank you. Alison Katz, Artery, is at Camden Arts Centre in London until the 13th of March. That show began in a slightly different version at Nottingham Contemporary, and a catalogue accompanying the two shows will be published in early 2023. An exhibition of Alison's posters is at Canada House Gallery in London until the 26th of March. Her paintings are in The Milk of Dreams, Cecilia Alemani's main exhibition at the Venice Biennale from the 23rd of April to the 27th of November, and she has a solo show at Luring Augustine in New York in September. September. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows, and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentor. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Alison Katz. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.